For those who are staying and not the kids that are leaving, open your Bibles again to the Gospel according to Luke. We are in chapter 4. Our series is called Mission to the World. It is Luke's intent uh, to show us that God loves all people. That's why we call it Mission to the World. His mission of salvation is, is to be proclaimed to all nations, tribes, and tongues. Uh, we've come to the place here in Luke's account of the gospel where everything Luke has been telling us about the Lord Jesus Christ is now being demonstrated, lived out uh, in, 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 in a real time in that day. God-inspired, God-breathed record of what actually took place during the life and ministry of Jesus. This is not a, a legend, right? But eyewitness account of the person and the work of Christ. In the first few verses, excuse me, chapters, uh, we saw the announcement of the birth of Christ. And within that, we saw several titles and descriptions of who Jesus really is. We said that this Christology, this understanding of who Christ is, became more evident, more clear through the titles and descriptions. It starts with his name. Jesus means God of salvation. We are told in the beginning chapter, he's the son of the most high God. He's the horn of salvation. He's the deliverer. He's the redeemer. He's the covenant promised one. He forgives sins. He's a light to the those in darkness. He's the savior. He's Christ the Lord. The Messiah, the anointed one, is the consolation of Israel. He's a revelation to the, to the Gentiles, the glory of Israel. All in the beginning few chapters, but what I want to focus on this morning, and I want us to remember and consider about the personhood and the mission of Jesus, came in chapter 1, when the angel spoke to Mary. In chapter 1, we read this, the angel Gabriel says, you, Mary, will conceive in your womb, Virgin Mary, and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, he will be great, he'll be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him, that's Jesus, the throne of his father David, that's King David, that's the promise made to him in 2 Samuel 7. And he will, that's Jesus, reign over the house of Jacob, Israel, forever. And his kingdom, the angel told Mary, will have no end. So Mary, in your womb, the Holy Spirit comes upon you, the power of the Most High overshadows you, you'll have a son. He'll be, he'll be the king over Israel, he'll be the promised one. The one that, that Israel had been waiting for, David's son, the eternal king, and he'll reign and rule over an everlasting kingdom. And we also saw that he is not only uh, the, 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 the one promised to David, but he's the second Adam. We saw that. So we connected not only with Israel's king, but with all humanity. That Jesus was tempted, we saw that a couple of weeks ago, as Adam was tempted, but he, unlike Adam who failed and rebelled against the covenant, Jesus did not fail. He obeyed and passed the test in the wilderness. And because of his sinless life, he was able to become cursed for us so we might receive life and forgiveness. Fully God, fully man, second person of the Trinity. And now we are seeing in this text, I want us to see that he is also the king of kings who came to inaugurate a kingdom, the kingdom of God. And his inauguration, this is entering into this kingdom We'll see today, it gives us a glimpse of what the kingdom will look like in the final consummation of the ages. That's the point. It is already and then not yet of the kingdom. I'll explain more as we move on. So let's look at this text in first in its context. Two bookends I want us to see this morning. Last week, Pastor Ricky did a great job talking and uh, working through the text, uh, looking at the beginning of Christ's earthly ministry. The narrative we saw began in a region called Galilee, in particular, Nazareth, the hometown of Jesus. He comes there in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
as was custom. He went into the synagogue on a Saturday of the Sabbath. They handed him a scroll, which was also customary. He opens the scroll, he unwinds it until chapter 61 of Isaiah. And he reads, we see that in Luke 4.18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, is Jesus teaching, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolls the scroll back up, hands it to the attendant, sits down, which is customary. Everybody's like looking at him. All eyes on him. And he says to them, today, this day, scripture, that scripture, has been fulfilled in your hearing. And at first, if you look at the text, they thought, oh, wow, this is wonderful. But then, as the story goes on, they say, like, isn't this Joseph's son? Uh, isn't this, verse 22 of chapter 4, this is jo- isn't this that kid that we knew, we saw grow up, and now he's telling us that he is the one that Isaiah spoke about and who has that kind of authority, setting people free, opening blind eyes to see. He's the Messiah, are you kidding me? And Jesus is like, yeah, I'm he. He takes two well-known prophets, Elijah and Elisha, and explains how the good news has come not just for Israel, but for all people, all nations, all tongues, all tribes, not just Israel. And we saw in verse 29, the end of the narrative, they want to kill him for that. They want to take him, they took him to a high cliff, and they want to throw him off the cliff. Just a loving and gracious community, that Nazareth. With that in place, look it down at verse 43 of our text of chapter 4 and see the other bookend. So you know, I'm the one Isaiah spoke about with authority and power. And then in chapter 4, verse 43, he says to them, I must what? Preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. That's why I'm here. So Jesus proclaims that he's the Messiah, the king with authority in Nazareth. Preaching the good news. And between the preaching of the good news and this this unfolding of Isaiah 61, we have our text. I want you to see that bookends. So Jesus is not only teaching with authority, not only preaching with authority, but what we'll see in our text, he's exercising his authority and power as the ultimate king, king over all creation. In other words, he's doing exactly what he said he was going to do when he read the scroll in Nazareth. Right? It's one thing to say who you are and what you're going to do. It's another thing to exercise that authority, to validate, to prove, to demonstrate the truth of who you are and what you are proclaiming. That's what we have here in that text. So three things. Authority and power that Jesus has over evil, authority and power over illness, and authority and power and the kingdom. So that's where we're going. Look at verse 31. Jesus says he went down to Capernaum. Try to kill him in Nazareth. So he's like, I'm moving on. And he goes down to Capernaum. Now, Ricky had this map up. I want to put it up again so you can just see where everything is. You have the, the, the um, uh, Nazareth, you have Cana, and then you have Capernaum. Now, when they say he went from Nazareth down to Capernaum, you can see for us it goes up, right? It's north. Like, you know, I'm going up to Plattsburgh or I'm going down to the city. That's the way we talk. But Capernaum was 680 or so feet below sea level. So for them, it's not north and south. They were going down to Capernaum. That, that's what it means when he says we're going down to Capernaum. It was a major uh, city in northern Galilee, 
Um, let me put the next one up. Put the next slide up, please. Northern Galilee, big trade economy. They had agriculture going on. Obviously, there a lot of fishing going on around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, as Pastor Ricky uh, mentioned also, Jesus comes into the city, and the first thing he does is what? Go into the synagogue. Goes to a new city and goes into the synagogue. Pastor Ricky mentioned it last week. So when those who say, you know what, I don't need to go to church, I don't need to gather with people, you are obviously much stronger, much spiritual, and have your stuff better together than Jesus does. Sarcasm. Because you don't. So just like in Nazareth, he entered the synagogue and he begins to teach the Bible. Think about that. They let God teach the Bible in church. It's a good idea. God, why don't you teach us your word, right? If only all churches would let God speak in their church, right? And as he taught them, it says they were astonished. In Nazareth, it says they marveled through mazo, amazed. Here they're astonished. Ekblesso means to greatly be astonished, to almost strike with panic. They were utterly blown away by his teaching. For his word, look what it says, possessed authority. Exclusia, um, the right and the ability and the rule and, and the capability to speak with authority. You know, people, all authority is, our authority is delegated authority, but not here. Jesus is someone who came with ultimate authority and ultimate power, and when Jesus taught, it blew their minds. They were just blown away. And with good reason. Look, Jesus didn't teach like the, the scribes did. The scribes would say, you know, um, Master or Rabbi Hillel or, or Master or Rabbi Gamaliel, he, he said this about that verse. Or while I was in seminary, you know, I, I was under this teacher, a famous teacher, and he would tell us this. I mean, nothing wrong with quoting teachers, nothing wrong with reading others and quoting. But what struck them was that the scribes taught through tradition, Jesus taught with authority. He handled the text directly and independently his word alone was sufficient he spoke on his own authority not on others and then notice what the text says right there in the synagogue was what a demon in church that's funny i guess we can't say i can't believe that happened in church a demon possessed man an unclean demon is at the church when it says unclean, it, it's not just moral uncleanliness, but ceremonial uncleanliness. Does it, not, not supposed to be there as God's people gather. doesn't mean like it's unclean demon that it's dirty or unhygienic. It's invasive. It's intrusive. It's a picture of sin and brokenness. And there he is. Verse 34. Man with an unclean demon. <laughs> You know, some people would say, you know what, no such thing. Jesus was wrong. Luke don't know what he's talking about. He was just, he was just struggling. He was, he was, you know, having some sort of psychological disorder. But you know what? Luke knew. Jesus knew. The poor man was suffering under a personal domination of a fallen angel, a supernatural being who was trying to hurt him physically and hurt him spiritually. It was happening then, family. It happens today. Not maybe as much as frequency, but let's not be fooled. What does the scripture teach us? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, Paul says in Ephesians. 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He exists. The other extreme I mentioned is that we blame Satan for everything. When we fail, we don't take personal responsibility for our own sin. Got to have this balanced approach to a broken world. Not every illness is caused of a demonic oppression, but I will tell you to this morning, after 19 years as your pastor, 17 as teaching pastor, uh, when dealing with people, this is my conviction, I think scripture will back this up, you have to deal with the person in, whole, in the wholeness, in totality of what I'm saying. You know, you have to deal with the person, the physical, the mental, the emotional, and the spiritual aspects of mankind. You know, so, you know, not so much today, but years ago, there was this big, you know, rush calling out demons everywhere. It was only spiritual. And then you got those that had nothing to do with spiritual at all. It only has to do with psychological family. We are complex people made up of emotions. Psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, we have to take the whole thing into account because there are spiritual enemies against us. And, and this demon sees and hears Jesus teaching with authority. And what is his response? As Jesus speaks with this authority, look what it says. Verse 34, ha, in other words, that's, that's an emotional outburst of surprise and indignation. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? What do you have to do with me? That's what, in English you would say, why are you meddling with us? Why are you bothering me? We have nothing to do with one another. Confronted with the evil, this evil spirit cries out, have no business with me, mind your own business, Jesus. Mind your own business. And you know what, some people, and some maybe here this morning, you might be saying that. If you can recognize that cry of that demon, that, that, that man who is possessed by a demon, what have you to do with me? Why are you bothering me? Mind your own business. You may not be possessed by a demon, but is nonetheless evil. When the gospel is shared and, and, we're, and you're called to turn from your sin, to repent of your sin, to acknowledge your sin, and turn your faith solely, resting completely on the finished work of Jesus Christ, and your response this morning may be, mind your own business, what does that have to do with me? Saying the same thing. Listen, when Jesus preached the gospel or anyone preached the gospel, there's no neutrality to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Indifference means mind your own business. What do you have to do with me? Are you on the fence? Or at least you think you are? That's what the demon said. Mind your own business. Jesus brings out this evil in us, but the good news is that he has come to give us peace and to, to rid us of that evil. Have you come to destroy us, he says? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Gabriel said that in chapter 1, verse 35. That's an accurate statement. And the contrast, you see the battle, the contrast in the battles between this unclean spirit and the Holy One, that which is pure, who comes with the Holy Spirit. There are many in the world, maybe here, maybe here this morning, who have not come to the realization of who Christ is. But the enemy knows who he is. There's one thing we can say about the enemy. 
He has sound Christology. He knows who Jesus is. They know who Jesus is, what the truth is. Listen, if anyone just simply says, I believe in God, all that does is qualify them to be a demon. Because even they know that much theology. James 2.19. Even the demons believe and tremble. The problem, family, here with this evil spirit is not that they are ignorant of the truth, but they hate the truth. Notice, notice what he says. Not you have come to destroy me, but you have come to destroy us. Interesting. Some people say, well, he's talking about other demons and other spiritual beings. I'm not quite sure. I, I, think, I think I see it more as this, this evil spirit is, is manipulating the situation. In other words, the demon is saying to Jesus, if you destroy me, you destroy this person. If you take me out, I'm taking him with me. Destroy us. But fortunately for the demon-possessed man, Jesus doesn't roll like that. But when the, he delivers us from the power of our enemy, he transfers us to the state of tranquility and peace. Be silent, he says, and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him having done what? Him no harm. Be silent, be muzzled, be speechless, imperative, it's a command, aorist tense, at once. Same word Jesus used to tell the storm to be quiet, be still. The wind didn't just die down on that storm, the glass, the, the, oh, the, the, the sea became like glass. He rebuked the wind as well. In Martin Luther's translation in the German, he, he simply translated, shut up. He doesn't look to heaven, Father, help me on this. He doesn't do some chants or some rituals. He just speaks. He re, his rebuke is this commanding utterance of authority and power that must be obeyed. The power and the authority of the Logos, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. The demon departs. The man is unharmed. And just like a doctor, got thrown to the ground, but he was okay. Mark, in his gospel account, doesn't mention that part, but you know a doctor's going to pick that up. And Jesus says, you know what? You spoke enough. Be silent. You're not speaking anymore. And I think the reason is that Jesus doesn't need a testimony from evil. Be quiet. The devil is defeated. The man is protected. God power, God's power overcomes evil. And you know what? That should comfort us this morning. When we, are comforted, when we are confronted with evil, this should give us comfort and confidence because the end of evil is certain. People who are at the mercy of evil can be freed by the, by the word, authority, and power of Jesus Christ. Remind me of a song, How Can It Be? You know that song, Long My Imprisoned Spirit Lay. Fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eyes diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Set free. Coming under the authority of Jesus is not oppressive. It's, it's freedom. And when they all, verse 36, were amazed, they said to another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he speaks, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. 
Reports went all over the place, all the surrounding regions. Can you imagine being in church that morning and a demon-possessed man comes in and, and everyone's scratching their head, they don't know what to do, and then Jesus shows up preaching the gospel to the poor, proclaiming liberties to the captives, sets uh, of, at liberty those who are oppressed, and his authority doesn't crush, doesn't intimidate, it sets people free. It brings them peace. What a day in life in the church, huh? One last thing as we move on. I, you know, I hear this from time to time. You know, can Christians be demon-possessed? And the answer is no. You can be harassed, can be oppressed, can be lied to, can be frustrated. But where the Spirit of God lives, there is freedom and there is liberty. He'll come up against us and he does. He'll harass us, he does. But he can't possess a child of God. Satan cannot inhabit a place where the Holy Spirit dwells. 1 John 4, for greater is the power that is in you than the power that is in the world. And I said this before, the greatest weapon the enemy brings against us is not his power and authority that's been broken. It's lies and deception. It's not a matter whose greater power we already know. It's a matter of believing, resting, and relying on the truth. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, my word, the scriptures. If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus prayed in John 17, his high priestly prayer. He said, sanctify them in the truth, set them apart by the truth, set them away from sin, set them to God, for your word is truth. Yes, Satan, the Bible tells us, runs around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is an adversary to be warned, of course. But scriptures also depicts him as a roaring lion fleeing with his tail between his legs because of Christ. Resist him, James says, and he will flee from you. Jesus has authority, spoken authority for our good, for our redemption. Authority over evil is certain, and that means that Jesus has the authority to rescue us, listen, from sin, self, and evil. Authority over evil. Next we see in verse 38 authority and power over illness. Jesus proceeds here to the home of Simeon, also known as Peter. He's Peter Apostle. You know, we don't get to Peter to the next chapter, but I think everyone knows who he is, so Luke doesn't make a big deal of it right now. It's, it's, it's Peter's house. And he has a mother-in-law. For those Catholic, Roman Catholic friends of mine, or I grew up in a Roman Catholic church, Peter is married. Just want to throw that in there. Anyway, she has a high fever. All three synoptic gospels mention this, but you know what? Only the doctor says it's a high fever. Wonder why. All right, the ancient physicians distinguished between that was high and lower or great and small. Obviously, it was a very dangerous fever, and the doctor picked up on that, and investigated about that. And then Jesus has this brief conference we see in verse 38, and he stands over her and rebukes the fever, and it's gone. Verse 39, and it's gone. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I've never heard that fevers have the capability like to, to listen or have their own thoughts. To, I'm not going, you know, like it doesn't happen. They're not responsive being, but here, Jesus, whether it was viral, I, commentaries get that, well, we don't know if it was viral or bacterial, like, who cares? 
This unhearing, unthinking thing obeys him. The power of God. He had the same authority over disease that he rebuked by his word that he did over demons. Both the physical world and the spiritual world are under his divine sovereign authority. All he had to do was rebuke the fever and it was gone. Told to depart and it goes. Here again, Jesus in one word heals this, this poor woman. Exercising authority and power again by his word. He exercises authority in teaching through his word. He exercises authority over demon through his word. Rebuking, he exercises authority over illness through his word. Words, when they come from God, have the power to conquer supernatural evil. It has the power to transform our lives, overturn illness. The words of Jesus carry supreme divine authority over creation and all the powers of hell itself. Peter's mother-in-law was totally and immediately cured, completely. She's well. And Luke demonstrates this power, this authority over this fever by telling us what she did next. One moment she's delirious, high fever. The next moment she's getting out of bed, up on her feet, and she's serving people. What a wonderful picture of the gospel, right? When you come face to face with the grace of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God, you meet Jesus face to face, you get up and you serve him by serving others. Jesus' authority sets us free from all the authorities that enslaved us, crushed us. It gives us a new set of purpose, a new way of life, a a life of hospitality and community and meeting other people's needs, and we see that. Not because, it's not because she had to pay them back. Oh, let me do this for you since, you know, I feel much better now. We do it like Simeon's mother-in-law simply because we get to. Out of love and gratitude. Jesus makes it clear he has complete control and authority over disease and disabilities of the human body. God has authority and power over all that he created. He's sovereign. At times he intervenes supernaturally and heals people. Yes, he does that today. Yes, by God's grace, we have seen him heal people right here at King's Chapel. The Bible says that you should, if, you, if you want prayer, if you are sick and you want to pray, uh, and you want prayer, James says, call the elders. And we have people calling us all the time. The pastor elders will tell you, we go in our room and we, we lay hands and we pray for people's healing. We, we should do that. That, that. That's part of ministry. Together, right? But it's also true that there have been miracles and supernatural interventions of God during major times and dispensations, during, during times of Moses and Joshua, Elijah, Christ, the apostles as a demonstration of showing that their message is authenticated, the message of the person of Christ and his apostles. But we are to move with caution. And I want to go there just for a minute. It's good for God's people to pray for a miracle healing. It is good. But for the right reason and understanding that God is still God and what we want is the will of God for us. We are required to discern the spirits and guard against the deceptions of religious, I'm going to say it, wing nuts and whack jobs. We should rightfully be concerned and, and suspect automatically any promise of this instant cure by self-appointed miracle workers who, by the way, got a phone number in the bottom, just send me your check. 
We should distrust anyone who performs miracles in this, in this show-like atmosphere, exalting their power to heal anyone, anytime with, with pompous, outrageous claims. And I'll say this, family, we should reject all those who quickly blame the victim, their lack of faith for any failure to heal. That drives me crazy. Yes, pray for miracles, but avoid the pursuit of miracles. Jesus, the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus and said, you know what, you think you're so great doing all this stuff we heard about? Do something for us right now. Show us a miracle. Give us a sign. He said, you know what? I know. And even an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Let me tell you, family, what the greatest miracle that's ever happened in all of creation, all of human history, outside the person and work of Jesus, is the miracle of regeneration. How God Almighty can give me a new heart, forgive me of my sins, and show me grace and mercy when I deserve hell and damnation is got to be the greatest miracle of all kind, all time. And that's for you and me. And let me just throw this out there since I'm on a roll. Some people leave the church, they, most of the people I leave here usually go to where it's warmer, I'm just saying. Um, and I get phone calls. I got one recently, actually. Hey, Pastor, do me a favor. Can you look for a church for me? So I'll go online. I'll Google, see, look in the area, and try to find, you know, it's hard to tell online, but I do the best I can. One of the things I look for is I go to their statement of faith. And if in their statement of faith it says that the atonement of Christ, the work of the cross, guarantees physical healing, I tell them, move on. Move on. Keep looking. That church is going to promote this kind of seeking miracles, where they fail to realize that we're still living in a fallen, broken world where disabilities and disease are part of God's curse against sin. Eventually, all our prayers for healing will be answered. But this won't happen until Jesus comes again. And God often uses our physical difficulties to do his gracious and kind and merciful work in our lives. And the life of the disciples of Christ, you and I, followers of Christ, we follow the pattern of the life of Christ in which suffering is the road to glory. That means, family, we can never, we, can, we, can, we should never, I should say that, we should never make our trials and our pain and, and sicknesses and all that stuff a test of God's love for us. We stand on God's word. And oftentimes, God is doing a work of healing in us that goes so much deeper than the physical realm, right? Word gets out. Sun is going down, which means the Sabbath is over. Because this is the Sabbath. He was in the Sabbath. He went to Peter's house, which they would do after the Sabbath, after the worship gathering. They would eat. Sabbath is over. Sun is going down. All those who had been sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. A couple things I want to notice really quick before we move on. Jesus just spoke a word, and the demon departed. Jesus was speaking in the synagogue, and they're like, yo, this guy got authority. Jesus spoke, and the fever was gone. But here, it says that he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. Why? Because the good doctor knows 
that there was many that came that day that hadn't had a physical touch in a very long time. This is the concern, the personal care and compassion of our great God and Savior Jesus. Notice also Luke is making it clear that some of them had spiritual issues and some of them had simply physical issues. They didn't have the same source, verse 41. And demons also came out of many, not all, crying, you are the son of God. He rebuked them again, not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And again, we see Satan's emissary speaking. Jesus' identity as the son of God was already given to us by the message uh, that Gabriel brought in chapter one. God himself at Jesus' baptism, this is baptism, this is my beloved son. The devil, when he's tempted Jesus in the wilderness, tempted Jesus as the Son of God. And now these, these minions, these, these evil spirits, concede his authority as the Son of God. And again, be silent. I really think that Jesus is telling him to just be quiet because he's not looking for any endorsement of evil. Doesn't matter what they think. Doesn't matter what they say. Jesus came for the purpose of destroying them, 1 John 3. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of of the devil. They knew what time it was. The king has come. The mission had begun. His evil, demonic, extinguishing work of, uh, of just destroying the works of the enemy began. Kent Hughes, the guy that we're going to be studying men, he said this, unable to bear the presence of Christ, they withered in the presence of Jesus' holiness, end quote. Jesus was not interested in what the servants of hell had to say. I'll tell you that right now. Even though what they said was true, it wasn't for God's glory. That's the difference. What matters at the end of the day is not simply that Jesus is the Son of God, but we're worshiping him, trusting him, treasuring him as the Son of God, the Christ of God. Demons don't do that. They're not ascribing him glory. So he said, be silent. And it's funny because we'll see, we won't get till chap, I think it's in chapter 9. Yeah, chapter 9 is when the disciples finally get it. Here the demons are saying, you're the son of God, you're the holy one, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the anointed one. We don't, get, we don't hear anything from the disciples until we get to chapter 9. Caesarea Philippi, right? Who does, say, who does everyone say that I am, Jesus says. Oh, some say John the Baptist, Elijah, other prophets, you know. Well, Peter, who do you say that I am, remember? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Lastly, in this text, I want to notice something else. He heals everyone. Unique occasion. Undeserved, unreserved display of power as Jesus brings, and as, as these people come and bring the, heal, the broken and those who need healing, Jesus just heals each and every one of them. Now, family, listen. Recognize Jesus for who he says he is. Recognize Jesus. Come to him. To have your sins forgiven. Don't just make a verbal affirmation. That's demonic. Worship him. Trust him. Don't allow the evil spirit to respond more honestly to Jesus than you. Recognize and come and fall and worship at the feet of our king. He had power and authority over evil. He has power and authority over illnesses. And now look at authority and power and the kingdom. It was a long night, I'm sure. All kinds of sick people gathered together, coming to the house, anything from raging fevers to cancer, crippled, blind. Some people came probably in, 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 with pain and torment, groaning and, and, and hurting, and they come. And Jesus, obviously, by the end of the day, 
is exhausted. Look what it says. He departed and went into a desolate place, but the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. Stay with us, Jesus. Don't go back to Nazareth. They want to kill you over there and throw you over the cliff. Stay here. (laughs) Very different response, right? But Jesus doesn't stay there. It's time for him to move on, to move to Judea, which is just saying all throughout Israel, which included Galilee. He had to go. And what is the reason Jesus had to go? For what's the purpose? To preach, verse 43, to proclaim, to teach, to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus' message concerns God's kingdom. A phrase that Luke will mention 31 times in Luke alone, six more times in the book of Acts. And Jesus, we see in Mark chapter 1, at the beginning of his ministry, come out of Galilee and began his public teaching, his public ministry, by proclaiming the gospel of God. Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled, Jesus said, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, family, in that day, when Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God, it would have been a familiar idea in the minds of his hearers. It would have awakened all kinds of images and themes and hopes. Many would have thought that this kingdom that God is bringing would be now and then, that he would come and he would, he would oust the rulers. He would, he would bring judgment to the world. He would vanquish evil. He would establish the kingdom of Israel. He will vindicate righteousness. In fact, that's why many of, them, many of them said, you must not be the Messiah. You know what? We, we want a king right now. We want someone to fix all our problems today. They were waiting for an earthly kingdom. And you know what? Unfortunately, there are some people today, read it in the news, that's still awaiting this earthly kingdom. Wanting some laws, some political parties, some social programs to fix all the wrongs. Not that any of that is inherently evil, but the gospel is that there's a true king and a true kingdom has come to not to correct social injustice, but to forgive sins, to heal our hearts. If you go back to chapter 1 of Genesis, we see God's creation, God's kingdom, where God was both king in his creation and in the men's, in men and women's hearts. We were whole, sound mind, sound emotion. Genesis 3, we know the story. The whole human race falls into sin. We want to be our own king, our own saviors. Self-centeredness takes center stage. We don't want to trust God. We don't need God. We find out that we want to be our own gods, I should say. Everything falls apart spiritually, rationally, socially, emotionally, psychologically. Our well-being unraveled. That's why John the Baptist had a preparatory baptism. is to get our eyes off of this kingdom and deal with our sin. Deal with the sin of our hearts, calling to repentance. To define the kingdom of God, one of the things, and some of you have been here, you've heard me say this before, but if you want to understand what the kingdom of God, the first thing, when you hear the word kingdom, the first thing you need to think about is God's rule and reign, Okay? Kingdom defined as God's rule and reign. It is the reign and rule of God first. Secondarily, it's over the people. Because we think of kingdom, we think of people, we think of realm. Think of king first. The king who rules over the realm, over the people. When Jesus Christ comes into the world, he invaded this world and God's rule had come. And you see that power that Jesus is is showing that's what he said in the synagogue in Nazareth he was going to do. That's what he's demonstrating here with the, with, the, with the power and the authority of his word. When you crown Jesus Lord King of your life, 
He rules over you. You are in the kingdom. No, it's not perfect, but you belong to King Jesus. You're in his realm. Jesus said, seek first what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. Not its righteousness. His righteousness. King Jesus brought the kingdom of God to earth and will continue his work until all creation is back under his sovereign rule and all creation is experiencing the shalom of God. That's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel of the kingdom is the good news that Jesus, the true and the better and the ultimate reigning ruling king has come. In Luke 17, the Pharisees said to Jesus, listen, about this kingdom, even the disciples asked, when, are you gonna, when, are you gonna, when is this kingdom coming? And he says, the kingdom is not coming in ways that you observed. It's not what you think. For the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Some verses, some translations is within you. That's a bad translation. What Jesus was telling them is, I'm here. I'm in the midst of you. The restoration was broken in Genesis 3. The promise that made to Abraham and the promise made to King David is here. The fulfillment of Abraham is here. The blessing of the earth is here. Your king, your guide, your provider, the lover of your soul is here in your midst. I'm here to make everything right. First time he came to die, when he comes again, everything broken will be fixed. Fear will be gone. Joy will be permanent. Suffering will vanish, tears will be gone, the human race will be unified, poverty and injustice will be over, hunger, disease, and death will be gone. And what you're witnessing here in this text is a glimpse of what the kingdom will be like under King Jesus when he comes and reigns permanently. And when you get there, we'll be like, home at last, home at last. That's our country. That's our home. So the Bible teaches that the lordship of Christ and the kingdom of God is both a present reality as I mentioned from the very beginning. He's exercising authority now and a future hope in which he will come and reign and rule and put down every opposition against him. And we live in that tension between the, the already kingdom, the present kingdom, and the coming kingdom. And just like Jesus, our job, our mission as a church is to preach the gospel, the gospel of the king. So my question as we close, have you submitted everything to the rule and reign of Christ? Your will, your future, your desires, your longings, your relationships, your independence, your heart. Have you submitted to King Jesus? You may just say, well, how do I do that? Listen to me. By seeing Jesus, the King of kings, and the kingdom that is coming, first went to the cross and died for you. Living a life you failed to live, dying a death you should have died, and then by grace through faith, forgiven of our sins and his righteousness imputed to our account. And when you bow your knee to that king and you're living in that kingdom as he reigns and rules, his love, his grace, his unconditional love, his grace, his mercy becomes your real sense of love, security, and significance. And the stuff of this world, the kingdom of this world, no longer has a grip on you, no longer satisfies you, because your satisfaction, your justification is in the gospel in Christ alone. They were just things. Their power over you has been conquered because King Jesus went to the cross, exposed and defeated those powers, and ushered in his kingdom. Here and now. He must die to forgive and pardon us, pardon us of our debt. And he died in order to transform us by his love. The power of Jesus overcoming evil, the authority and power of Jesus overcoming illness, and the authority and power of Jesus being exercised 
demonstrated, validating, he is the true king of kings. Will we bow our head to King Jesus this morning? As the band comes up and we sing about King Jesus, is there anything in your life, put a curtain around your heart, that God wants you to just give up and recognizing Jesus has all authority, Jesus has all power, Jesus forgives sins, Jesus embraces me, his love is enough, he is sufficient, he is all satisfying. He has all authority and power. And his kingdom has begun. The inauguration has begun. And with hope, assured hope, he will come and reign and rule in righteousness forevermore. Let's pray. Father, it is easy, I think, to look around and to see such confusion, such brokenness, not only in the world, but in our own hearts. So it is, it is joyful to read your word that you have given us, the authority of your word, the promises of your word, that we could stand on that truth and have hope even in the midst of brokenness. In our own lives, in our own state, in our own country, in our own world. Evil will not be the end. You will. You will reign and rule in righteousness. And God, may we be a people who love you, who worship you. In the midst of difficulties, trials, and situations, wherever we find ourselves, you are still king and you're still reigning and ruling over all things. Help us, Father, to relinquish those things that, that want to take control, that want to capture us, and that we would turn it over to you, that we would be captured by the beauty and glory of Christ. Our affections for Jesus alone will take supremacy over our lives. And we pray, God, that we would also live on mission. Uh, God, declaring and demonstrating the gospel and that the power of Jesus to save is still manifesting itself today. God, use us for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' good name, amen.